0: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.
1: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Are you a fan of The Wire, the groundbreaking HBO drama created by David Simon? If so, you and I and pretty much every other person who treasures the show all have something in common, I bet. None of us fell all the way in love with The Wire. After the first episode, it's not that the first episode is bad. It's actually great. It has one of the best opening scenes ever in television history. But The Wire is just kind of set up like a novel. It has its own idiom, its own pacing. And the payoffs, when they come, usually take half a season, an entire season to develop. Everything is kind of a slow burn. Anyway, Andre Royo played Bubbles on the show, a homeless drug addict who frequently worked with the Baltimore PD. He was a fan favorite. He knows pretty much every critic agrees about how
2: great the show is now. But when the first show came out? They were like, it's too dense. We couldn't understand, you know, half Mm -hmm. the dialogue. There's too many storylines. The show thinks it's a book. And I remember running into David's office like, yo, they hate us. We got to blow some, blow some heads up or, you know, <laughs> show somebody's butt like NYPD. So, you know, we can show a lot more. We're on cable. So right. Something. And he just sat there with his feet on the desk and reading the paper and was like, don't worry, they'll come around. I mean,
1: he was right. It's Bullseye. Coming up. We're doing things a little differently this week. We are dedicating an entire episode of our show to The Wire, one of the greatest TV shows in history. We'll hear more from behind the scenes on that great show from Andre Royo and from another one of the stars of the show, Wendell Pierce. He played Detective Bunk Moreland.
0: The writing was so rich, it feeds on itself. You know, the writing and the acting was so rich and the community that we created and the world that we created We created it so strong that it induced all this wonderful behavior and moments and stuff.
1: You'll also hear from author Jonathan Abrams. He just wrote a book about The Wire. It's called All the Pieces Matter, the inside story of The Wire. He knows more about this show than probably than David Simon, the creator. He says one of the most important goals that they had in The Wire was to get everything right, to make it look and feel real all the way Super-duper, double-duty,
3: real. You know, one, the wire always shot on location, and they always shot in, like, real, real locations. So they would be clearing out, like, you know, real drug needles, the set decorators would be, and then they would be putting in the fake uh, drug needles. (laughs) So it, it really had that layer of authenticity to it.
1: It's Wire Week on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. First up on our Wire special, Wendell Pierce and Andre Royo, two actors from the show. If you haven't seen the show, first off, come on, it's 2018. <laughs> I know that I'm a guy at a party haranguing you about this, but watch The Wire. Anyway, basically, it is about Baltimore. Baltimore. The cops, the drug dealers, the dock workers, the politicians, the journalists, the systems they work in and the very human reasons that those systems don't function the way that they're supposed to. And in an ensemble cast of dozens, Andre Royo and Wendell Pierce both stood out. Take Bunk, Wendell's character. He's funny. He's a loyal friend, a dangerous drunk and really, really clever. In one scene, he convinces a suspect that a photocopier is a lie detector.
0: We'll start with an easy one. Is your name, in fact, Deshaun Fredericks?
3: Yeah. True.
0: And do you reside, in fact, the 1200 block of Woodyard Street in West Baltimore? Yeah. True. And did you and Arnell shoot your boy Pookie down on Cary Street just like mon said you did? No, nah, no. Bye. Mm. Mm-hmm. The machine is never wrong, son.
1: Then there's Bubbles, played by Royo. Bubbs, as he's known, is a heroin addict. He's also a reliable informant for the police. And as the show goes on, he gets more and more complex. You meet his family, his friends. You see into his world. He hits bottom and he manages to come out to see the other
2: side. Ain't no shame in holding on to grief. As long as you make room for other things too. It's all right. So thank you for listening. Thank you for letting me share.
1: I talked with Wendell and Andre a decade ago when The Wire was still on TV. Back then, we recorded the show in the apartment, so if you hear a phone ring, uh, that's an actual phone. It's just like The Wire. It's my commitment to verisimilitude. Anyway, here goes my interview with Wendell Pierce and Andre Royo, recorded in 2008.
2: If you walk through the garden, you better watch your back.
1: I want to ask you guys what you thought of the show when you were very first cast before you even did a table read when when you uh, when you got the part and you saw the script,
2: what did you think of it? Uh, well first of all, when I first found out even about the audition of a character named Bubbles that I, I found out was going to be a junkie, I was very hesitant to even go into the audition i I felt like I didn't think that we were still you know, creating characters like this. You know, I coming from a great character that Chris Rock did with Pookie and Sam Jackson with Gator, when you just hear uh, you're playing a junkie named Bubbles, I was like, you know, I don't know if I want to, you know, start my career off that way. Then I realized I was starting my career off and I had to do <laughs> what I got to do to get it going. And uh, when I got the part, you know, I, you know, we love to work, man. And, you know, once you once you get a job... You think that you're going to go on the set and you're going to, you know, make sure that the talent shines above anything else. And when I met David Simon and Bob Colesbury, uh, one of my late producers, they sat down and talked to me. And and you you just got a sense from them that this was not going to be just some old cop show. It was going to be more than entertaining. It was going to be more than educational. It was going to be a certain type of movement. They had a message and a voice that they wanted to get across. And you kind of believed it. And when I got there for the table reading, saw the other cast members, you know, certain people that I recognize from, you know, running around and grinding out in New York. I just felt kind of special. When, we read, when I read the pilot, you know, me personally, I thought, well, oh, this is a cop show that an audience uh, already has an idea of what cop shows are p- supposed to be like. I didn't think the audience was going to pick up on it. I thought it was a lot of talk you know, everybody from the cops to the robbers to the political, everybody was just talking. There was no like, great, great sex scenes and no heads were getting blown off like <laughs> I thought was going to happen on cable. So I was nervous. I was like, this is not going to make it. Don't quit your day job. Let's get that money for the pilot and keep it moving. But
1: I, I imagine living in New York that you you must have, I mean, all, there's all these cop shows that shoot in New York, you know, yeah. that and mm-hmm. that's sort of been the thing. And I imagine uh, being black, being tall and skinny, like you just kind of get called in for these sort of one episode Oh, criminal guy that confesses in the end, junkie informant that informs on people kind of
2: Yeah, role. you just you can you can't have a cop show that's realistic without some black guy going to jail coming <laughs> from jail or being in jail, I mean, <laughs> confessing. You know, it's got it's got to be that way and and you you kind of understand that as a black actor, you know there certain roles that you're going to come into in the beginning of your game and realize that you're going to take and hope that like I said that the talent kind of stands up or stands out a little bit more than the character you're playing. And with this show, it was just more than talent. It was just the writing. The writing just stood out yeah. and, and told all the actors in our hearts that it ain't about you know us. It's about Baltimore. It's about the story, and we all just you know fell into just being real and and, and trying to get the story to you know reach
0: a lot of people's hearts. What about and you? Especially, well, I first when I first got the script, I, I knew it was going to be something very different because uh, the humanity in the script, you know the how people were dealing with each other and you know I had the same concerns that Andre had which is wow people are so accustomed to you know 10 minutes and then an explosion 10 minutes and then a sex scene Um, I was I was saying that they were really making this leap of faith about you know that we trust that the audience uh, is intelligent enough and will you know that they will step up to the show and even when we first saw the, the, you know the first viewing of a of a rough cut. You know we were all nervous. Like wow, wow well is slow. you know maybe uh, <laughs> this is real, <laughs> this is slow. real slow. And uh, all right, well we got the pilot money, so <laughs> back to the grind. Yeah. But uh, you know that was the thing that David and Robert were uh, were trusting of that the audience was dying to see something of uh, of true depth, and that they would come to it. And David himself says it's not viewer friendly. You know. First couple of episodes, you're like, okay, it's setting stuff up, but you know what's going to happen. How long did it then, gonna take? And yeah. then it, it then it becomes almost addictive. But you know, I don't want to. The the writing is great. The writing is absolutely fantastic, and you never see, you never see the humanity given to these characters before. So that black guy, that stock stereotype that you see in other television shows, is not appearing on the wire, and that's that's the writing. And also, I have to give it to uh, Andre and. Oh, everybody. especially everybody, everybody yeah. but especially the guys on the street because you know um, they've given the humanity to cops you know you see their humanity you see their stories you see you've seen their families before even though the writing for us also is very different because we're so flawed you know there's an ambiguity of morality when it comes to everyone you know but, you know, people brought so much humanity to the roles that you can never see a kid with a long tee and some baggy pants and ever look at him in the same light again. Just like, oh, he's just a drug dealer. He's just a junkie. He's just a kid hustling, you know. And also, when you stop by the cop, never just assume the superiority sort of uh, complex. So, you know, he 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 has it together. He does everything perfectly. He He's going to be respectful of me. You know, they, these are flawed people. So... When I first read it, I thought, this is going to be something different. When I did the table read and saw the talent attached, then I said, man, I knew it was going to be special. And even before we started shooting, I remember one night we all just got together for drinks and we're hanging out in the hotel room. Yeah, and, and people were just like, yeah, listen, feel- man, don't let me. I don't want to drop the ball. I want to be there. It was like this team meeting. Yeah. Like, we, we're going to do something special. And then when it came together, then uh, it just the payoff has just been uh, just uh, profoundly moving.
1: When you're an actor in a television series, you have this uh, one very you have this one character who's one piece of a much larger puzzle. Right. Mm -hmm. When did you first get a sense of the scope of the series? Like not just on the small scale, but even on the on the big scale, the way that this, you know.
0: It wasn't until after it aired for me, because, you know, David, all the producers were very, very, uh, very, very committed to not letting us in. Yeah. You know, not giving us a head start of where the story is going or where the character arc is going to happen, because they didn't want the, act- the actors to come up with some preconceived way of playing it. At times it became frustrating. I remember when I was chasing a gun in the third season, I was just like, what is this about? Where's this going? You know, and the payoff was wonderful. But, you know, while I was doing it, I was just so frustrated, you know, watching all these other great storylines happening. I'm like, I'm chasing a gun. (laughs) Yeah. So um, you you didn't for me, it didn't see the payoff until after. And then you like, man, all the pieces come together. You know, as we have this expression, all the pieces matter, all the pieces fit.
2: Yeah, there's certain things that will happen, as far as the, the, the full scope of the show, you're so close to it, you're shooting, and like like Wendell said, we're so busy helping out each other, making sure we're all on top of our game, making sure we're being as true to the character as possible. It's hard to really remove ourselves and, and take a bird's eye view in the big scheme mm-hmm. of, of of the show. I know there's certain moments, like when... when uh, Lester Freeman, you know, says, Clark Peters says, all the pieces matter. There's certain lines that really resonated to me. Well, this show is something really different and really heavy. You know, when when Bubbles' character was trying to get clean, and I'm talking to uh, Kima, Sonya Sohn, and, you know, I ask her, you know, help me out to get clean. And she goes, well, what am I going to do with a clean snitch? That kind of, like, really resonated to me. Like, wow, you know, they just really want to get the informant and get the, the case. They really don't care. Or they do care but they have other agendas. And it's so many things rush through your head that you realize this show is telling so many different stories and so many different layers that you just, you know, you look at it and go, yo, this show is big. Like, I hope Mm -hmm. everybody can catch all these different nuances and all these different storylines you know, at once, and you're not sure. You know, we, like, like we said, we're used to watching a cop show, and at the end of the hour, the, 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 the criminal usually, you know, puts his hands up and, and waits for the cuffs, you know, to come on. <laughs> and in, in this one, it doesn't happen. You know, we keep moving, and everybody keeps going at it, you know, and, and it kind of really has, a, like, a complete ending. It's just a continuing crime happens, crime goes on, and this is the story of these people and what they do to try to help, you know, better the community. You know, after the after the after it aired, I remember the Daily News and the Post. They gave us like half a star. They were like it's too dense. We couldn't understand. You know, half Mm -hmm. the dialogue. It's too many storylines. The show thinks it's a book. And I remember running into David's office, like yo, they hate us. We gotta blow some blow some heads up, or you know, show somebody's (laughs) butt, like NYPD. So you know, we can show a lot more. We're on cable. This is something. And he just sat there with his feet on the desk and reading the paper, and was like, "Don't worry, they'll come around." You know, and he really believed. That his stories and, and his message will not have to be dumbed down. That the audience would revel in, you know, paying attention and getting the story. And once you watch the wire and you get the story, you kind of feel good that you're that you're paying attention,
0: that you're that you're getting it. You know? and, and it goes across the board, you know. Yeah. It's just the demographics. Are, you couldn't put your finger on a wire fan. You know, it's rich and poor, black and white, young and old, and. Like anything of of real real specialness it all they always feel as though they're the only ones who really understand it you know a real a real wire fan is someone who goes, "Man, I wish everybody could understand and appreciate it as much as I do and as we go around the country and all we we get to hear all the yeah. all the fans that we have, and uh, that's very special you know that's very special when when people feel as though it's speaking personally to them, and David always trusted that people love to read. And I'm gonna I'm gonna make a novel for television, something that you can go back to over the years and, and, pick and, and, up and pick up pieces over and over because it's gonna be so layered and all the different chapters you can go back to and actually trust that you can reference something from two years back and still have it appeal to someone you know two years ahead. You know
1: what? When I actually bought the chair that I'm sitting in, I bought it on
0: Craigslist,
1: and uh, I went to this guy's house here in Hollywood to buy this chair, right? And I get there and I'm, you know, I'm just going to give him my money, the money to buy a chair. And uh, he's wearing this T-shirt that says, elect Frank Sabatka. And I was like, <laughs> Frank Sabatka? I was like, is that a wire T-shirt? And he's like, yeah, I make them myself. <laughs> oh. And this guy was like, he was, a, he was like a Hollywood writer. I asked him what he did. You know, he was like a writer that didn't write on the wire. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, he, he just had that really intense personal connection to the show enough that this grown man, I mean, he was like 35, mm-hmm. was uh, w- w- was making t-shirts themed upon with like iron-on letters and whatnot.
0: And we have a lot of writers who, would I mean, they would love to write on The Wire. And they are big fans of the show. And we've been hired because of the show on different shows. And have the writers come down to set, which is a rarity. Writers stay up in the room. and The writers come down to set and say, I just wanted to meet you. You know, can I call you bunk this week? You know, (laughs) know, I'm like, of course you can. Uh, But we have a lot of big fans of the show because they, they see that David... Uh, and all the writers on the show have this freedom that they don't because, you know, uh, network television is so formulaic. You know, even the actors know it. We had this expression that, you know, if you're on Law & Order, you're going to confess. I mean, if you're on Law & Order, you're going to be found guilty. If you're on NYPD Blue, you're going to confess, you know. So everybody,
2: I did an episode of Law & Order one time, like, after the third season, and it was so funny because I've done it before, before The Wire, and, you know, you get the little, you know... What's it called a little room, and you sit in the room, and you wait till you get on set. You get on set, and you do your job. And it's good. Thanks for coming. Bounce. Now, you know, I, I get this honey wagon, and <laughs> hey, the, the riders are coming down, and they, the people are really excited like, to see me come on set. And it was one scene where Chris North and his partner come in, and I have a gun in the, the apartment. And, you know, when they come in, I, I see the hallway is clear. I know the cops are coming, so I ran. And they yell, cut, cut, you know. And they, the writer come over to me and he goes, "Listen, on our show we're not as smart as the wire. Just put your hands up.
3: <laughs> don't try to mind?
2: We ain't got no other scenes when they chase you. When the couch come to your house, you normally you, you get mad, you yell, and you put your hands up and you wait for the wait for the handcuffs. And I was like, oh, okay, that's how you do it over here, you know. I got a little cocky, but it's it's they, you know it's it's so amazing, you know, when you see certain people like certain writers, you know, if I go on a, a lot, you know, writers I don't even know their names, you know, and they just come up to me and. Introduce themselves and say, "Yo, your show is so fantastic. Your show is so great." And you forget sometimes. You know, even even after even after I watch the show and I know it's good, you kind of forget who your audience is. You mm-hmm. know, You're so, I'm so used to a certain type of audience coming. Like, "Yo, I love that scene." You know, with the with the drug dealers and everything. You know, I see somebody like Cornell West. I'm a little nervous to go say hi to him, and he comes running <laughs> up to me.
0: yo, I love you, bubs. I love your show. <laughs> no.
2: You kind of, you, it's kind of an amazing feeling. You didn't, you never know. How many people do you reach when you're doing something good?
0: And I'm also a fan of the show. Uh, fortunately for me, I'm sort of like this satellite where, you know, I come in contact with the different storylines, but I'm basically a, you know, homicide in the office and then I go out to the site. So I get to, I never really have scenes, or uh, ever, you know, rarity have scenes with uh, a lot of people on the streets. So I have, I get to go to the set and watch it. I get to watch. You know, as a fan, I've even read the script. I know what's going to happen. But, but you know, it, it I sit there when it. I saw you know Andre when he discovers that you know he may have been responsible for that kid's death. You know, I, just as a fan, as an as a fan of the show, as a fan of acting, you know, to see someone come and bring that level of chops. You know, you sit there, you go, and I knew Andre Royo in New York. You know, on the grind too. You know, and so I, I just really appreciate it. I know. You know, and it's, I'm not blowing smoke, man. You know, no, that's the all. thing that I really, I really sit back and get to appreciate. And you forget, and you forget that they're on the same show with you because you don't have scenes with them, it's and a, you get to appreciate it f- as a fan, and then go, yeah, I am on the show with them. You know, yeah, so it's it's a, it's, it's a very special thing. It's a big it's a cast. You see everybody, and you,
2: you don't, you know, you don't realize because, like, like wonder said, we shoot our scenes you know 18 hour days sometimes we just go home we're tired mm-hmm. so you don't really see everybody shooting you know if, I, if bubbles doesn't get arrested i don't know what the cops are doing right so like same same when i watched him and dominic west i mean the first season when they had that scene when they they solved the case and they only used the word you know the f word yeah that was amazing <laughs> yeah. man i used the f word all the time it never has that kind of it never <laughs> has that kind of weight yeah. I, I thought about i thought about playing that scene and i'm like wait a minute no i can't do that cuz <laughs> right, it just right, sound right. like beep i mean beep, no that changed beep. that changed for me that was when when you saw that on television you know it kind of changed the writing you know level of writing to a, to a different place like Mammoth, like shakespeare it was like to use that word and do a whole scene with it was beautiful and you know now you can't take those kind of risks on network television you know and just seeing him with Omar i mean there, there's so many characters that you just you, know, you don't have scenes with but when you're watching on TV even like you say even have to read the script you're just amazed you're like wow that's, you forget you're like oh that's my show I'm on that show too when I pop up I'm like oh I forgot I was on this show too wow because <laughs> right, right. you know all the actors brought it I mean I think you know what's great about Baltimore which is one of the best things about you know the show is shooting in Baltimore and it being about Baltimore and David Simon making sure that they bring, they bring regular people from the streets within the scene it kind of made all the actors say you know what let's step this up let's bring our best let's bring our A game and you know it,
1: it Make became it up, fun More of Bullseye's The Wire special when we return from a short break. In a little bit, you'll hear from Jonathan Abrams. He's got a brand new book about the show. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR's sponsor, Squarespace. Destiny's calling. It says you need a new website. Easily create a website by yourself with the help of 24-7 award-winning customer support. Head to squarespace.com bullseye for a free trial. And When you're ready to launch, use the offer code bullseye to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Keep dreaming, but make it a reality with a website from Squarespace.
0: Ever listen to the news and
2: wonder, is there anything good happening out there? I'm Mindy Thomas from NPR's Wow in the World. And each week, Guy Raz and I take you and your kids on wild adventures to explore the most wow-worthy news stories on the planet. Find Wow in the World on Apple Podcasts.
1: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We're listening to my interview with two greats from HBO's The Wire, Wendell Pierce, who played Detective Bunk Moreland, and Andre Roya, who played Bubbles. One of the things that David Simon cares so much about the show is that authenticity. It's not necessarily like exact literal verisimilitude. Like it's obviously it's still a television program. You can still only have so many main characters, for Mm -hmm. example. But um, there's this core authenticity that is basically, I mean, it's almost the premise of the show. I mean, you you talked about it as humanity, like that these characters are humane no matter who they are. And I think Mm -hmm. it's one of the reasons why so many different types of people respond to the show. Um, I I wonder if that if that feels like a a burden on you guys as actors that, you know, that, um, you you know, for example, uh, when I saw your character on TV, Andre, and, you know, started coming back like it was like you know like i i grew up in a, in a neighborhood with plenty of junkies and um m- sweater sweater vest that i'm wearing right now <laughs> notwithstanding mm-hmm. um and uh i was that was the first time i ever saw somebody that was portrayed in that way humanely and i can't imagine what it would what would have been like that if i had what it would have been like for me if i had myself been you know a junkie or in recovery you know what i mean like mm-hmm that feels like it must be, it must be in some ways a, a, a burden or at least a concern that you feel like you have to represent people in a, in a whole way.
0: I, I feel this is... I can't speak for Andre. I feel as though the burden is happening now, that it's over for us. It, it, the writing was so rich. It feeds on itself. You know, The writing and the acting was so rich, and the community that we created and the world that we created, we created it so strong that it induced all this wonderful behavior and moments and stuff. So it fed upon yourself. I mean, I remember the, actually this one scene I had with Andre where he was getting beat up by a cop in the first season. He's getting beat up by a cop. So I can't walk in a room and say, how am I going to play it? You know, I just, I just had to be there yeah. and react and try to save him. The level of the work was such that now as I go out on calls and read this episodic sort of expositional just one
2: two-dimensional character.
0: Two-dimensional character. The the burden is now because before we I think we created a, a, a forum and a place to work where people had the freedom to have leaps of faith and to then the be. game just went to another level.
2: Yeah, it was just it, you know I don't I don't look at it as a burden. It almost became like an honor because, mm. because there's so many characters like we we've been speaking about that aren't told. In you know its purest way, it's told one two dimensional. Let's just get the story done. Let's just get to you know the ending of the of the show and the and the bang at the end. So when I was in Baltimore and we was you know hanging out, I was hanging out with junkies and, and, and guys were hanging out with cops. We saw humanity. We saw these guys talk mm-hmm. and have passion and have anger and have empathy all, in, all all rolled up in one. We saw the real people, and so now we have a chance to play these people. It'd be, it, would, it would be silly for us to say, okay, I'm just going to play this one part. I'm just going to be this real hard cop all the way through. Mm-hmm. or I'm going to be this real comedic, you know, skeevy junkie all the way through. That, that, that kind of just, you know, kind of cuts into just being artistic. You know, if you want to do it, you want to do it right. You know, I think David Simon, I heard him talking one time, and that was, that was the one thing he said, you know, when they asked him, what do, you, what do you want them to say to you when this is all said and done? What do you want somebody to say to you about The Wire? And he was like, that I got it right. You know That's not that true. it was great, not that you know we got all these awards or people thought we were the best show, just that you know when somebody walks up to me and says, Yo, "You know you know you playing my life though I, I was that guy at one point, and you, you did it right, you know a cop goes, you know we cop when he got there." You know, we asked cops, you know, how do feel? They were like, Yo, don't play us this way. Don't, yeah, make sure so you man. don't do this. We don't all be doing we're showing our butts, and it ain't about who we sleeping with. You know. And we were like, Okay. I think they probably do all show their butts. <laughs> they probably they do. Point. Yeah, right. But the
0: point <laughs> part was, was when we were joking around
2: when we thought showing how hard it was to solve a case, how mm. a lot of things red tape gets involved and how some cops do get frustrated. And you know, you know, you saw the cops when they aired, they, they, nobody was mad. All the cops was like, yeah, you hit the nail right on the head. That's I,
0: I, I I I literally was terrified of the real bunk. You know, I, I went out with him. We we hung out. I, you know, talked to him, stuff like that. And one time, the first season, he came to the set and in the distance, I saw him get out the car, kind of cock his head and put on a <laughs> skull. And I was like, and looking at what I was doing and I was like, oh, man, I'm not nailing it. I'm not. He He has issues with it. So I was literally, for the past couple of years, with only, you know, every once in a while, talk on the phone, send a note, send it through mutual friends. And then someone said, hey, man, you know Bunker's retiring. I said, yeah, I know. So I have to go. So I go to the retirement party, you know. And he's like, he he looked at me like the lost son, you know. There he is. And every, he was just so appreciative, man. Thank you for what you did for me. You know, everyone, you made me feel special, you know. And I said, Man, You didn't need to do that. Look at your career. He said, But you nailed it, you know. You nailed it. And it was it was that was the payoff. That was my award. I don't need anything else, you know. That the real bunk at his retirement party embraced me like a son, you know.
2: Yeah, people people just really respect and appreciate honesty. You know, we all know we have a different sides of ourselves, but once you see somebody playing or portraying what you do or who you are on screen, you know, you just want it to be honest. You don't want it to be glorified. You don't want it to be belittled. You just, you know, you want it to be able to look at them, like looking in the mirror, and say, "These are my flaws. These are my good points." And you know, this guy did it, you know, a great job. You know, I walked into Barnes and Nobles when I first came out in L.A., and this woman came up to me and said, "You know, I love what you do on the show, and I have to, I have to say, I can never look at a, another homeless person in the same way. You made me feel for them because normally, you are growing up, me growing up in New York, you walk past them." And it, you don't even have any judgment about them, you just ignore them, they don't exist, they're invisible and you know they we have to step back and go, they're human beings and you know when somebody said that to me, that was my award, that was my honor like wow, I didn't know I didn't know or oh, I forgot that television has that kind of impact. It ain't just to sit back and forget your problems. it's That's also right. an awareness to show you where the problems lie and you know i thought I thought that was fantastic, you know, and I think Baltimore has been a great Help with that, you know. I have a lot of. There's one scene where you know I'm about to steal this copper off this truck, and I'm smoking a cigarette. And when the copper truck pulls out, I throw the cigarette away, and I me and Johnny go you know hit the hit the, <laughs> hit, the hit the hit the truck and steal a copper. We yell the director yells cut, and this you know this guy comes to me and goes yo, you know we never throw out our cigarettes, man. You keep the filter, you know, put it in your sock or something. And I was like, all right, cool, we gotta reshoot that. I gotta, let's reshoot that. And, you know, it's those little you know those little things that you know they want you to do it right. You know, they're not embarrassed by it. They just saying, hey, if you are going to do it, portray me in the right way, you know, let people know that you know I'm here, and I think that's brilliant, man. Let me ask you guys this: when I when I was uh, preparing for this interview, I read I read this
1: long article that ran in the Times a long time ago, in between the Corner and the Wire, that was mostly about um, the the article was basically about how Charles S. Dutton, who had directed the Corner, and David Simon, who co-created or created it and co-wrote it. Um, sort of, they had very different ideas about the way that the racial dynamics played out in creating the show and how it played out on the set and um, so on and so forth. And one of the things that Charles S. Dutton said was, and I, I copied and pasted it to my computer so I could say it, he said, I know that David Simon can visit and sit with as many black folks in the city as he wants to. They can pay the families to get the stories. They can listen and walk around with dope fiends. They can write about murders and they still won't know a damn thing about black people. Not this, you know, this, indicating his uh, self and who who he is. He says, I know the pulse of this. I know what people think the minute they walk out of the doors. I know what mothers feel when their sons and daughters walk out of the house to go to school. I know what it feels like to kill somebody. I know what it feels like to get shot. I know what it feels like that uh, people are looking to kill me. I don't know. I don't have to show up as a crime journalist after the fact. And there's this, I mean, he obviously, like, one of the most one of the most uh powerful speakers of in the world mm-hmm. <laughs> Charles S. Dutton you know right. like you could hardly ask for a, a more brilliant guy or a guy who speaks with more gravitas on this subject right. I mean you know he's a guy who was in, who was in prison for um, manslaughter among, mm-hmm. among other things mm-hmm. um did that ever? Did that ever occur to you that you're shooting that you're shooting this show in Baltimore, which is a city that's um, one of the things that, that came up is Charles S. Sutton saying Baltimore is a city that's two thirds black, and you know the cast of the show is a, is mm-hmm. you know roughly two thirds black. I'd say you know maybe even more.
2: Yeah, a little more. Yeah. Um, yeah, more.
1: D- did you ever? Did you ever have to deal with those issues in your head about the fact that this is um, obviously all the whole staff of the writing staff of the Wire isn't white, but um, that this is coming from a, a white guy who's, who's who, who's looking at this through very indirect experience?
0: Well, I, I feel as though, first of all, um, no matter how wonderfully you, you portray something, uh, how close you get to it, how much you nail it, and all, and all the accolades that we give on the show, the people who live it, who live it, ultimately, are the experts on it. You know, they will know it, no matter what story it is. They are they are living it, and we are only portraying it and we try to be as truthful in our portrayal of it. Um, I also tell people who have issues with the show and have issues with the fact that here you have uh, white creators trying to tell predominantly black stories that never lose your ability to be offended because that keeps people's feet to the fire, that keeps people on their toes, that keeps challenging David and any other writers that come to the story. Uh don't lose the ability to be offended.
1: I heard, I read you mentioning that in an interview, or something that uh, Jesse Jackson said to you on the set of Get on the Bus. Uh,
0: we were actually, uh, we were actually rehearsing for Get on the Bus, and it was at the time uh, uh, we there were they were protesting the lack of black representation in the Oscar nominations, and and actually when he said that, that was the one thing that really struck me. And I said, you know, that that's a vigilance that we should always have, you know. Never to be offended. I, I ne- never to lose the ability to be offended because it keeps people on their toes, you know. They're so saying, well, wait a minute, I don't mean to offend. And, you know, they actually go check and recheck of who they are and why they're coming to it and writing it all. Because the opposite of loving something is not hating it, is indifference, you know. If you don't care, then we've really reached a point where we're destroying it. So, and we haven't we have it, we've had our issues too over the past five years I'll never forget one thing that uh, really grabbed me and Sonia Son especially brought it to David's attention when David mentioned we asked him about uh, someone's murder and he says well, I, well you know why would you do that and he said well there's no hope and we we all took great offense to that you know don't if, it, if there was no hope you wouldn't even have a cast here yep. you know all the stuff that the people we've gone through you know so don't you know, how dare you say that? I mean, and, and you know, and, and uh, I remember Sonia brought it to my attention and it was uh, it was something that, you know, she she had every right to say and she knows, you know, she really got on David about that. You know, we took issue with that. Um, and so it's, it's a constant it's a constant checks and balance, you know, that should go on. So I'm glad that the de- I'm glad that the debate is constantly tabled. You know that that it's constantly on the table, so that we will never take for granted the way we portray um, people who uh, who have uh, and, and who have gone through what no no one should go through. You know, an underclass that was created by institutions and individuals. That you know, people who have been victimized. You know, so that's that's I I I embrace what Charles is saying because. Uh, that's where that that's where it comes from
1: there's another side to to what he said which was that even in the in the moments where he felt like there was nothing wrong where it was felt real and true it also scared him a little bit or upset him a little bit because he felt like he was uh giving something away that he was like that by doing this i think he um Oh, I, I can't remember the uh an analogy that I can't remember the analogy he drew but it was someone who had um <laughs> Look, you, know, you don't have that you don't have that analogy posted to your computer <laughs> No I be? should have saved that analogy um <clears throat> but uh it, it was it was a, a moment in which gosh I think it maybe he said it was Dionne Warwick had had left a production of um of an August Wilson play maybe it was Fences or uh something like that uh, because she felt like she felt like it was so real and that the people that he was being presented to were white people and it was like she I think the word she said was it's like they're giving away our secrets
2: or something mm-hmm. like that do you ever do you ever have that feeling I, I, I never had that feeling um, you know and I'm as not as well into the game and politics and all that stuff, so I don't want to, you know, Wendell Pierce is the man to really answer these type of <laughs> questions. But I, I, I will no. say, I never felt, you know, I, I never felt like we were giving any secrets away on the on on this show. I mean, I never really, I mean, it was a it was a a social and a class uh, type of story, poor and and rich. You know, people who got mad and say, oh, they're betraying blacks as junkies and as drug dealers. And I was like, yeah, but we got black lieutenants and we got a black mayor. And I, I thought we had a a pretty good balance of, you know, positive. I mean, and even the positive had negative sides to them. So I just thought we were just telling a story. And you know, I think Charles Dunn is 100% right. As far as will David have any kind of sense of what it is to be black? No, not not at all. No, but never. he does have a sense of. You know, being in Baltimore and talking about the community that he knows and what he feels uh, is wrong with the community and what he feels the problems are, and I, I thought that's what we were talking about. I thought we were just talking about the destruction of this community that happens to be, you know, mostly black, but it's the same problems in in, in certain poor white communities.
0: And then also to get your points across, you always the more the more specific you are, the more universal your themes become, you know. Uh, I, I, there was this little socialite that I met in New Orleans recently. Who come down, who was talking about the wire, and you know, she's she's talking about how she really didn't get into the show, and everybody kept talking about how great, how great, and then all of a sudden the kids came on. That's right. And immediately she was just like, I know the I know kids. Hey, I you know? care about. And you. she knew she everything became so clear to her, you know, because the humanity and and childhood. And the evolution of childhood and coming of age, you know, you know I, I, that was the, that was the thing in the fourth year that j- just impacted. I think that's why even more people came on board because the the, the the coming of age story in childhood is so universal, you know. Theirs became specific, you know. Ours was, you know, is someone going to turn and go into the trade or not? Is as much as you know. As as as, prof- as a it's a profound thing to someone who never even faced those choices who may have been their choices may have can I ask the the pretty girl out to the dance you know but they understood immediately what those choices had to be and how devastating they can be for yeah. them, you know the influence, so, yeah, the influence yeah the influence, the, influence. The, so the, world. Sp- the more specific you are the more universal it becomes I think that people's reaction to are they giving out secrets away comes from a historic perspective you know. Everything that African-Americans and people of color have contributed to the human dis- discourse has always been stolen. You know, we go back to the Greeks. You know what I'm saying? There are some people that believe, I think, it's Socrates really didn't exist. It was actually this African cat that Plato got most of his stuff from and then created his great teacher. Uh, you do the research See, and figure I out told you. i told you but, I told so, you it gets real deep. So, you know, I mean, you know, Duke Ellington even said, you know, they were sitting around and said, why do we call this jazz? We should call it Negro music and no white dude would ever want to be the king of it. You know? So what happens is that that humanity has been, and our co- contributions to the human discourse, just like our contributions to what we're talking about in Western civilization has never been accredited to us. And so, when people see that, they go, "Hmm." There's, there's that fear. Well, maybe we shouldn't have said that. Maybe we shouldn't have exposed ourselves because, also, it's been manipulated. Manipulated, you know. You know, everyone now loves Muhammad Ali. Everyone. I remember. <laughs> I remember when people were like, "Frazier, kill him! Kill that communist!" You know, I mean, they hated him. They hated Muhammad Ali. So there's revisionist history. I live in the South where you go on the tour of the plantations. They don't discuss slavery. They literally say the house was built in 1832. And when the Smith family from New Orleans bought it in 1930, you'd be like, hold it, hold it. You just skipped the whole generation. You know, or the servants stood over there. When you say servants, you mean slave, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, I remember one time I was on a tour and the people... Would turn to me after everything she said because I challenged her so much. They are like, Well, is that right? You know? I'm like telling people about the whistle walk. What's that? Yeah, we had to whistle with the food coming from the kitchen to make sure we weren't eating it. That's why it's called a whistle walk. It's a, but now people thought the whistle walk garden and plantations is someone, Oh, the flowers are so pretty. Let me whistle. You know? So, you know, so, uh, you know and that's what people are responding to. But we should never be afraid. We should never be afraid to be private in public because that's what art is all about, especially acting. Great art is to be private in public, you know, and that's when they tap into that authenticity that Mr. Dutton was talking about in an August Wilson plays. That's where that fear comes from, you know, like, oh, my goodness. But it's the best explanation of who we are and our humanity that is undeniable. So it's the best Defense against someone stealing our creativity. I want. I
1: want to ask each of you guys uh, 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 some things that are sort of separate from each other. The themes of um, the themes of the uh, city of Baltimore, I know, are particularly resonant for you, Wendell, because you're from New Orleans, a city that mm-hmm. had a lot of the same problems that Baltimore has, even before there was a devastating hurricane. Right. Um, tell me a little bit about uh, tell me a little bit about how the themes are particularly resonant for you as a as a New or,
0: New Orleanian. Yeah, New Orleanian. Um it's the same socioeconomic things that are happening, you know. A black city surrounded by affluent a poor black city surrounded by affluent white suburbs where people come into this great port, and make their money and aren't uh and aren't uh forced civically to to pay that city for the riches that they bring so they take it out to in baltimore they call it the county and then they build up these wonderful neighborhoods and go oh they look back at the city and go oh why is it so such in poor shape it's awful i said but you came to my house every day made your money and didn't even leave a tip on the dresser you know slept with my wife drank my food and split you know that's a that's what and that's exactly what new orleans is all about you know um they look at the city and see, see how poor it is and you know, they spend so much time lobbying against any education reform, you know, privatized prisons, you know, you can literally call the sheriff and and have two guys come and cut your lawn for a dollar fifty an hour, you know, in any parish in Louisiana. Privatized prisons. So, you know, you see the politics that are set up to keep an underclass because it's modern day slavery. You know. Um culturally, a bar on every corner and a church on every other, which is so New Orleans and so Baltimore, you know, um, and uh, a, a rich cultural city like that. Uh, and, and I think it comes from the fact that it, it's a port city. You know, they love to party like New Orleans likes to party or maybe we just like to party in the cast because we <laughs> <laughs> we're certainly party. Um, so and, and, and the politics of uh, the politics of keeping it underclass because so many people benefit from it. I saw those similarities in New Orleans.
2: Coming from the Bronx, you know, I never really heard about Baltimore. And when I did hear about it, it was just like this little city that people just forgot. I mean, most of my boys and people I knew, you either go to D.C. or you go to New York. And so there's a place in the middle that just people drove by. And it felt like when I got out there, you know, I've seen projects before, but this felt a little different. This felt like there was no sense of, you know, people being looked after or just or the abandonment. Uh, issue was really, uh, really strong out there, and it amazed me, you know, because not that we felt that much in the Bronx, but in the Bronx, you know, there were certain moments where we were talked about our name buzz, and when hip hop came out and everything, we kind of buzzed, and then all of a sudden, Manhattan became so big of a place to be that when people talk about New York, they they really just talk about Manhattan. They're not talking about the Bronx, they ain't talking, they're not talking about Queens, but they're just talking about Manhattan. So, you know, there has a, there's a sense of abandonment in, in a lot of projects in, in the Bronx where, you know, you just don't feel like people care about it. And I think that's what resonated with me in Baltimore. Uh, so that was the things that, that kind of connected me more and more with uh, the character and, and with the streets and with the, the show itself. When you walk through the garden.
1: Andre Royo and Wendell Pierce from 2008. You can see Andre Royo on the Fox series Empire. Wendell just played Detective Lee Tucker on Unsolved, The Murders of Tupac and the Notorious B.I.G. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. This week we're dedicating an entire episode to one of my favorite TV shows of all time. Maybe hard to say, but maybe my favorite TV show of all time, The Wire. Next up, Jonathan Abrams. Jonathan is an award-winning writer for The Bleacher Report, and before that, he wrote for Grantland, The L.A. Times, The New York Times, and others. He got obsessed with The Wire when he caught an episode in the show's fourth season. That was 2006. He turned his obsession into a new book, which is out now. It's called All the Pieces Matter, The Inside Story of The Wire. It's an oral history of the show, as told by the actors, writers, directors, and other people involved in its creation. Short of talking with all of those people yourself, it is one of the best resources out there if you want to learn more about the show. The title for the book comes from one of the most memorable scenes in the show's history. Let's take a listen to it. You're about to hear from two detectives. They're sitting in front of a computer. There's Roland Presboleski, who is a new cop who has gotten his job through nepotism basically and lester freeman who is a smart and very careful veteran they just finished listening in on a phone call between two people that they suspect are drug dealers prez Belusky just marked the conversation non-pertinent
3: non-pertinent how do you log that non-pertinent no drug talk they use codes to hide their patron phone numbers And when someone does use a phone, they don't use names. And if someone does use a name, he's reminded not to. All of that is valuable evidence. Of what? Conspiracy.
0: Conspiracy? We're building something here, Detective. We're building it from scratch.
1: All the pieces matter. Jonathan Abrams, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show.
3: Hey, Jesse, how you doing?
1: I'm so excited to talk about The Wire. I will take any opportunity.
3: <laughs> Me too, my friend.
1: <laughs> um, so uh, I guess as good a place to start as any is is this. Is The Wire the greatest dramatic television show ever made?
3: Yes, that was quick. Yeah, I know,
1: right? <laughs> Usually somebody would build to that, but I figured, you know, let's let's kick it off.
3: No, I mean, it is, and I think... When you look at it in the grand spectrum of shows that it helped usher in as far as long-form narrative storytelling goes, uh, Breaking Bad and and Mad Men, I think The Wire really opened the doors for shows along those lines. So, yes, I put it ahead of all of them in the pantheon of great television shows.
1: Here's kind of my perspective on it, is I don't think that The Wire is a flawless show, and there may be other more perfectly burnished dramatic television programs um i mean i love mad men too i have to admit i haven't seen the sopranos i know people love the sopranos sorry sopranos fans but i i think that the thing that distinguishes it is it is so rare for a television show to have such extraordinary ambition and deliver on that ambition so capably um And that was something that was essentially new to dramatic television series, at least when The Wire started. What what was the goal of The Wire, according to David Simon, its creator, with whom you talked extensively for the book?
3: I think he wanted to create a show that focused on arguments, that focused on these institutions, the police department or middle schools or politics and really hold a light to these institutions that we look on for a lot of public services and make the argument that, hey, maybe there's better ways we can do it. Or maybe these institutions don't always hold the individual's best interest at heart. Or why do we put so much faith in these type of institutions? And, you know, The Wire is a show that really told the line as far as being educational And really entertaining. And I think if you watch it on first glance, if you just watch it and don't really know the backstory, you don't know what David Simon is aiming for, then the whole education part of it can just go over your head because the show is just so entertaining. So I think you need to watch it more than once to really uh, gain the full spectrum of what he was aiming for.
1: How did you come to The Wire?
3: So I had a friend who was on me to watch this show, watch this show, watch this show. And... I finally caved in. So I missed the first couple seasons and season four was actually the first season that I saw on HBO in real time and then I couldn't go back fast enough to watch the rest of the series.
1: What was the thing that your friend told you that uh convinced you that you should give the show your time?
3: I I remember him saying that he had never seen a show like this before and that I had to see it. And I don't really remember many descriptions I think beyond that, but I mean, really, how do you, what's the elevator pitch of the wire? How do you How do you describe it to somebody?
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, like everything in the world through the lens of crime, I guess. <laughs> that's
3: That's pretty good. But I mean, it's just such a complicated layered show that it's really tough to describe to a friend. That's why I think some people still haven't watched it today. I think they're intimidated by it.
1: Are you from the city originally?
3: I grew up about 45 minutes outside of Los Angeles.
1: Like, I think that one of the things that was immediately resonant to me about The Wire, which, you know, was a show about a city that was 3,300 miles or whatever from where I lived and where I grew up, was that it was a show about a city that felt very sincerely rooted in the city. mm mm-hmm. And in a, in an experience of the city that was recognizable to me in a way that, you know, I mean I don't know like the uh, like, Bullet is set in San Francisco or, uh, you know, there were some Whoopi Goldberg and Robin Williams movies that were set in San Francisco or Full House, you know, <laughs> and none of those. It was. It's fun to see something that you recognize from your life on a movie screen, but none of them represented anything about the experience that I knew of living where I lived.
3: Yeah, it's like, hey, there's the Golden Gate Bridge shot. Yeah, in exactly. Full house.
1: <laughs> Cut to uh, sofa on uh, <laughs> obvious stage set in Los Angeles. <laughs> um, but like the thing about the wire is, you know, Baltimore. Uh, you know, when it comes to major American cities, dramatically different from where I grew up. But there is something about that experience of uh, urbanity um, that you didn't feel in other television, except for maybe occasionally a little bit of New York, you know?
3: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, one, The Wire always shot on location, and they always shot in, like, real, real locations. So they would be clearing out, like, you know, real drug needles, the set decorators would be, and then they would be putting in the fake Uh, drug needles (laughs) so it it really had that layer of authenticity to it um the wire is is unique because it's so it's so baltimore and andre Royo, the actor who played bubbles talked about how to him baltimore was the greatest character in the show to where you, you see row houses in the show that are pretty unique to baltimore or you see the characters talking about a random orioles player like melvin moore at the time, or somebody like that. But at the same time, I think the story that The Wire was trying to tell is so universal, so, you know, parts of it is applicable to places like New York or Los Angeles or other really urban cities, and to toe that line is just remarkable to me.
1: One of the particular things about Baltimore and voices that is represented on The Wire, especially when there is a character played by an actor who is uh, a native of the Baltimore area, somebody like uh, Felicia Pearson, who played Snoop on the show, or um, or Robert Chu, who who played Prop Joe, who was kind of a, a rival drug gang leader slash um, drug drug gang United Nations head, <laughs> um, is that a Baltimore accent is one of the most Utterly baffling to people who are not from Baltimore or the (laughs) Mid-Atlantic. Like, right up there with Philadelphia, there are these, like, compound vowels that you can't even believe that's a real person talking if you're from, you know, Cleveland or uh, Los Angeles.
3: (laughs) It's it's very, very original, right? (laughs) Like, um, for somebody like Snoop, (laughs) you're just... Like, for somebody who's not from Baltimore, I remember thinking, like, what in the world did she just say? And that was before you could rewind the TV. So, I mean, it took so long to be able to really actually pick it up and understand her.
1: More Bullseye after a quick break. The Wire never won an Emmy. Not even one Emmy. Greatest television show of all time. No Emmys. Did you know that? When we come back, Jonathan will tell me why he thinks that travesty, or I guess extended series of travesties, took place. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org in NPR.
0: Ever find yourself saying that happened this week? Us too. All the time. I'm Tamara Keith, host of the NPR Politics Podcast, where we follow the political twists and turns and break down what it all means. Find us on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Support for this podcast and the following message come from REI. Human beings are becoming the world's first indoor species now that the average American spends 95% of their life indoors. Take the quiz at REI.com and see how small changes can lead to a better life outdoors. REI Co-op has everything you need to get outside more often, from gear to trips. REI has been sharing their passion for the outdoors since 1938. Visit REI.com or your local REI store. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's a special episode this week, an entire show dedicated to HBO's The Wire. My guest right now is Jonathan Abrams. He just wrote a book about the show. It's called All the Pieces Matter, the Inside Story of The Wire. Someone asked me on Twitter when I mentioned that you were going to be on the show that they wanted me to ask you, and I thought it was such a wonderful question. Do police officers in Baltimore really say police?
3: You know what? That's... That's a good question that I'm not even sure of, but so much of that show is layered in truth that I would imagine that that would be the natural dialect for a lot of them.
1: When you talk to the cast of the show about making the first season on location in Baltimore before the show had any reputation, what were the things that they described to you? What did they think they were doing?
3: So, first of all, everybody... Nobody thought that the show was going to get picked up. <laughs> they were wondering what in the world was going on in the pilot. There seemed like there was too many characters, and they didn't know where the heck this thing was going. But they were excited because for a lot of these guys, it was their first time working on anything major. If you think back to it, you know, nobody had really heard of Idris Elba or, or Michael B. Jordan or a lot of the cast before The Wire. Um, so they were excited. They were excited. They were hopeful. And I don't think it took them before too long where they realized that they were working on something special. I think um, Joe Chappelle, who was a director, remembers being with a lot of the actors in a room where the show hadn't aired yet and they hadn't seen the episodes, but they were already working on episode five or so. And one of the actors asked Joe if he thought that the show was actually going to work. And Joe had seen the episodes to that point, and he was like, "Yeah, this is going to be something special."
1: Something that I read in your book, several of the veteran actors uh, say, was that for a lot of the African American actors, they'd never been in a big show where there were a lot of other African American characters. I mean, somebody, I can't remember who it is, says like, well, you know, I mean, I'd had an African-American wife on TV before, but to have a bunch of different kinds of African-American people on the show was a big deal at the time.
3: Yeah, and honestly, that was one of the things that originally drew me to the show when I watched that fourth season for the first time. And it's not just African-American characters, it's just showing so many different dimensions of a character and having the characters be you know, high up in the police department and uh, in the mayor's office and uh, also on the streets and be sophisticated criminals, not just out here racking up bodies, but trying to almost be a legitimate business in the way that they go about doing things. And I remember one thing Reggie Cathy told me um, The great actor who recently passed who was on the show was that he said that every time he had gone to hollywood he would go out to audition for the one black part where it would be just this one dimensional black character where he was just the outstanding citizen because everybody wanted to have that one black role model on their show to where he came on the wire he was able to show all these different dimensions and have these Uh, great one-liners with the character that he played, uh, Norman Wilson, the mirror's aide. And that was something new for him, and I think something that a lot of those actors appreciated in real time.
1: What else was different about The Wire right from the beginning?
3: So, I think probably one of the biggest things that really stood out to me from reporting the book was just how much of The Wire was sourced from real life, which was basically everything uh, from David Simon and his co-creator, Ed Burns, from their professional careers. So everything you're watching in that first season was based off of a, a real-life criminal investigation that David Simon reported on and, and Ed Burns actually policed. And to be able to put that into such a dramatic narrative storytelling format is special to me.
1: I think that a lot of people have often compared The Wire to... A novel. They've also often compared it, I think, pretty aptly to classical tragedy. And the element that is so important is that the uh, the tragedy is that the systems are broken. Right. The power is outside of the characters. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, it is built in. Right. Like the world is sad because of things that are beyond the character's control. And that's like significant when you're talking about, I don't know, like Achilles or something like that. But it's particularly significant when you're talking about the kinds of characters where typically the conflict in a story about them is about characters rather than systems because... Mm you know police officers and people committing crimes when they are dramatized you know they are dramatized in personal ways that suggest one is that, that necessarily then suggest one is the good guy and one is the bad guy right because that's where the drama comes from exactly and it seems to me like one of the central insights of the the kind of the building of the wire was that the way it was built Allowed for there to be no good guys and bad guys, not just in the sense of, uh, not just in the sense of uh, you know Game of Thrones, you're never sure who's going to be good or who's going to be bad in a given interaction, but simply that everyone is a person doing their best, and the pain and drama and tragedy comes from a a bigger picture force.
3: Right. I mean, <laughs> you put that in a really good focus maybe you do have the elevator pitch for the wire Jesse. <laughs> it's pretty remarkable after only seeing the show once um so kudos to you
1: it made a big impact on me
3: <laughs> yeah i mean
1: for it, real jonathan like i want to talk about this in a second but like for real i don't know if i have the emotional capacity to go through it again <laughs>
3: I mean I'm that's a true. Very
1: season 4 gets dude. Me. I like to watch All Creatures Great and Small, okay? <laughs> like, <laughs> that's my other favorite show.
3: I mean, season 4 gets me every single time. But I mean, yeah, that's that's the great tragedy of the wire is that you're watching the individual bump its head against the the institution where the institution is what's broken but the individual can't fix it. Um so you see somebody like mcnulty bumping his head against the police department's uh institutional institutional ways or you see prez beluski trying to make an influence in a kid's life and as a teacher and that not really having a impact or you see somebody like Bubbles struggling throughout the whole series and you know at the end of the series you finally see that little glimmer of hope with him going up the stairs but there's there's not a lot of victories in the wire i mean uh, and it's uh to sum it up, it's, it's a show of, uh, of disarray and, and despair, and you're trying to figure out, hey, are we even viewing these institutions the way we should be?
1: I want to play a clip from the first season, the second episode of the first season, that features D'Angelo Barksdale, who's the leader of the uh, criminal conspiracy that is the subject of the investigation in the first season. And... You're right. He's an absolutely breathtaking character, just an amazing character and brilliantly played. And so in this scene, there's two kind of teenagers uh, who are in the gang. They're just basically street level dealers at this point. And they're sitting there with their boss, D'Angelo. And one of the guys who's a runner, whose name is Wallace, is eating some chicken nuggets. And um, he offers some of his chicken nuggets to D'Angelo, who's his boss. And Wallace kind of in passing says, man, whoever invented chicken nuggets has got to be rich. Let's listen.
0: You think you get a percentage? Why not? Please. The man who invented them things? Just some sad down at the basement of McDonald's. To make some money for the real players. Nah, man. That ain't right. Right. It ain't about right. It's about money. Now, you think Ronald McDonald gonna go down that basement and say, hey, Mr. Nugget, you the bomb.
1: We selling chicken faster than you can tear the bone out. So I'm gonna write my clowny a- name on this fat a-
0: check for you. And the who invented them things still working in the basement for regular wage, dicking us some to make the fries taste better some like that. Believe.
1: That dude said his clowny a- name. <laughs> But it really speaks to the fact that, like, right from the very, very beginning, it was a show about systems.
3: Yeah, and the template that life isn't always fair. I mean, D'Angelo had some great speeches to, to those kids. Um, you know, when you when you said, when you were talking about a speech, I thought you were going to play the chess speech, uh, metaphor speech, which is also an incredible written piece of dialogue. But, yeah, that. <laughs> That one is really, really good, too.
1: I think it's fair to say that The Wire is the best television show ever to not win an Emmy. Yeah, without a doubt. How did—I remember—I remember remember when that was happening, and I was watching The Wire, tearing my hair out. How could this possibly, possibly be real? How could this be happening? (laughs) So how did that happen? How did the greatest television show of all time not even win a Emmy?
3: I mean, I think at the time you had The Wire wasn't a Hollywood production. It was made in Baltimore by people in Baltimore, and it was a, a show that wasn't a Hollywood show. And I think... You know, David Simon's argument and some of the people's arguments from the show was that people almost looked at the wire as a documentary and <laughs> it wasn't a television show it was more of a of a documentary and you know it it's not a reflection on the wire or their the work that they produce it's a reflection of the voters and what they ignored.
1: I was grateful to read that Lance Reddick told you. <laughs> I met Lance Reddick back, backstage at a show one time and I was like, I was so geeked out to meet him. And uh, I, I was so grateful to read him say that he would just be mad about that for the rest of his life.
3: <laughs> I love that honesty too because most of the other people were like, uh, you know, it's it doesn't bother us. We weren't doing it for any type of awards. And, you know, David Simon says that he he wasn't doing it for any type of awards. And here comes Andre Royo saying that Yes, we need to be recognized because we need it for our next jobs, and it gives us a balancer. So here's Lance Riddick saying that, "Yes, I'm pissed off about it. I'm still pissed off about it. How you dare you even ask me about that?"
1: <laughs> uh, and that dude is intense too. <laughs> like that dude's is intense. I mean, he's much w- w- warmer and nicer in real life than he is on screen. But who, boy, that guy's like 50 years old, and he's yoked, and I know. <laughs> he's got those, and in- he's got those fire eyes.
3: I think it's in his contract that every show he does, he has to take off his shirt at least once.
1: Dude, if I was the, <laughs> if I was as yoked as that dude, all life, I would be I would be doing courtroom scenes with my shirt off if I was <laughs> as yoked as that guy. How do you think that the Wire changed television and our culture?
3: I mean, just purely on a television spectrum and ushered in long form storytelling. I think The Sopranos started doing that to a degree, but I think the way The Wire did it had a lasting influence to where, you know, even for a show like Walking Dead uh, that has a, a narrative storytelling format and you see all these Wire characters on that show and it's because the showrunner was such a huge fan of The Wire and The Wire inspired him. So I think it really helped usher in those the prestige television era uh, that we're steeped in today to... You know, to be honest, we have too many choices of what to watch nowadays. And, you know, on the just the educational side, I think it touched on issues that are still as relevant today as they were when The Wire aired and that still need to be addressed and looked at in, in new and different ways. I mean, we're still talking about the war on drugs right now um, to where The Wire season one basically showed why some why an approach like that wouldn't work so you know i think as long as a lot of these issues that we're facing as a society are still presenting itself um the wire is still going to be relevant in those ways as well
1: well jonathan abrams i'm so grateful to you to take all this time talking about uh one of my favorite things ever um and i'm sure one of your favorite things ever (laughs) congratulations on the book and thank you
3: anytime i appreciate it jesse
1: Jonathan Abrams, his book, All the Pieces Matter, the Inside Story of The Wire, is out now. Fans of the show, you won't be disappointed with this one. Give it a look. That's all for this week's Bullseye. Bullseye recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where this week we spotted an apparently non-ironic rollerblader. Kudos to you, sir. This show produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He had help from Casey O'Brien. Production fellows for MaximumFun.org are Jesus Ambrosio and Shayna Deloria. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Our theme was recorded by the Go Team and provided to us by Memphis Industries Records and by the band. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, all of them are free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. And while you're at it, check out the Bullseye page on Facebook. We share... All of our interviews, along with clips and highlights and news from the world of culture, like uh, this past week, The Prince Estate put out the original recording of Nothing Compares to You, which was both an incredibly auspicious moment and a little disappointing for me because I had a bootleg MP3 of it, and now I'm not that special. Anyway, The Outshot will return next week, but suffice it to say, this week, go watch The Wire, or rewatch The Wire. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off.
0: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.